Our patients take a myriad of vitamins for a myriad of reasons. Is there any real evidence that taking any of these compounds are helpful for any of the medical conditions our patients are using them for? You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host. And with me is Dr. Eric Tangelos, Professor of Medicine, Chair Emeritus of Primary Care Internal Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Tangelos. My pleasure. What is the premise for the idea that vitamins may help with cognition? Well, there's been a lot of things written and a lot of observational studies done over time suggesting that vitamins have a role to play. Perhaps the first vitamin that had evidence surrounding its purpose in dementia was vitamin B12. And in fact, over the last 30 years, it's always been taught that one of the reversible dementias would be vitamin B12 deficiency. So we still actually look for vitamin B12 deficiency in anybody that we've got an inkling has a dementing process and along the way check a folate usually, and at least include that in, in part of the evaluation. That said, there are exceptionally few cases of vitamin B12 deficiency that are actually found as contributing factors to dementia, and there's even fewer patients when you actually find that situation and treat it, you make a significant contribution to their betterment. B12 seems to have a far more active role in pernicious anemia and its treatment there has great responsiveness. Vitamin B12 also has a role in the myelination process, so people with peripheral neuropathies, of course, have this issue as well. And treating them seems to be better than trying to treat the few cases with Alzheimer's disease. Nonetheless, if you were to ever find a patient with vitamin B12 deficiency in the face of Alzheimer's disease, you'd want to go ahead and treat it. So certainly it's more efficacious for the hematologic and some of the other neurologic manifestations we associate with B12, but for actually cognition and dementia, somewhat disappointing. And that's where the observation started, though. It was in that universe that it started. And clearly, if you've got a deficiency in B12, you'd want to try to take care of it. What happens after that is that, gee, if you don't have a deficiency, but it seems to work in people who are deficient, then, gee, how about treating everybody, anybody that's got a dementing illness? Let's give them more B12. If a little bit is the right amount, more might be better. And that's where you get into this cascade of vitamin use and attempts at vitamin therapy that just haven't panned out. And in uh, your recent column in the Internal Medicine News, you cite a study by McNeil et al. where they did prospectively look at a multivitamin. Is that a good example of a negative study in this arena? It really is. And, and of course, our Mindful Practice series always looks at double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials in trying to weigh the evidence. And as I started out today's discussion, there have been plenty of studies done, mostly observational linking some kind of deficiency with some kind of therapy. But when you get down to the rigorous studies that are double-blind, randomized, placebo-control, this stuff doesn't really hold up, and it, and it actually hasn't held up really well on uh, meta-analyses either. Are there particular vitamins that have some suggestive data behind them? Well, other than the vitamin B12, the next one that gathered a lot of attention over the early part of this decade was vitamin E. And there were a number of studies that were done with uh, vitamin E and selegiline on its impact in certain patients with dementing illnesses. But the additive value was uh, quite limited. And then just about three years ago, uh, Hopkins meta-analysis on vitamin E said that 
given for all reasons, the vitamin, vitamin E, probably increased mortality rather than decreased it. So it's not being used in dementing illnesses right now, and it certainly isn't being used in cardiovascular disease, which was the other major area that vitamin E had seemed to find a home for a little while at least. I'm a primary care internist, and I'll often get patients back from neurologists who have suspected or confirmed dementia on various types of folic acid. Is there some body of evidence there? Uh, the folic acid business goes along with the B12 evidence. And of course, folate and B12 are coenzymes that kind of get in the process of myelination. But again, the observational studies have some suggestions to the benefit, but the longitudinal and double-blind placebo-controlled studies really haven't. And, and there's actually been quite a few publications along these lines. Now, the caveat in all of the published work is that in general populations, vitamin supplementation doesn't seem to make a difference. In, in general populations, even of the elderly, it doesn't seem to make a difference. But yet there may be some sensitivities with regards to how tests are done or populations truly at risk, extremely elderly, where we still don't know exactly the benefit of some of these precursors. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Tangalos, Professor of Medicine and Chair Emeritus of Primary Care Internal Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and we are discussing whether vitamins can improve cognition or help in the setting of dementia. Dr. Tangalos, some of my patients insist, well, I need to take more of these vitamins and the, the dose is not right or they didn't evaluate cognition appropriately. Is there a substance to these assertions? Well, it's hard to argue as the data still is quite limited and the amount of information we want quite limited. I tell my patients that medicine is rather faddish and in the early part of this decade, we put a lot of people on uh, vitamin E at high doses and now we're taking them all off of the vitamin E for similar background information and reasoning. So I'd rather have them focus on other things. I think they need to maintain good nutrition. I think they need to maintain an adequate diet. And most of the evidence would point that if they're adequately nourished and not vitamin deficient or mineral deficient or nutrient deficient, then their daily dose of those substances that they're getting in their diet is probably enough. There's actually more and more evidence that higher doses as an attempt at therapeutics may adversely affect them with regards to a variety of problems, including increased malignancy, increased cardiovascular disease. Absolutely. And is there a way for us to be more proactive about getting this message out to the public? I think one of the things that primary care docs need to do a little bit better job of it is actually spend the time on what non-prescriptions patients are taking. Patients are sensitive not to bring up a lot of these things and what sits on the kitchen table on a big spindle and gets refilled on a weekly or a monthly basis. And I think if you do a good job of taking a medication history, it really should include the vitamin and mineral supplements. And that gives you the first opportunity. One, you've shown an interest in the patient. And then two, you can actually discuss some of these things in a format that they'll want to hear. In the context of what you know or don't know about the drugs they're taking and about the supplements they might be using. And if a patient is taking something that we're not familiar with, are there particular references that you would point us to? Well, I have patients that bring in all kinds of different things, sometimes in foreign languages, and it's actually difficult to find them out. But I still like uh, the opportunity to go to Google, type in the formulation, and see what happens. And I'll send my patients the same way. There's better information instead of worse information on the net. 
and patients can really become better informed as they look through some of these things. And may I ask you about vitamin D in particular? Certainly, that's one of the things I think most of us feel is important in terms of absorption of calcium and bone health, but there are some other things being bantied about in terms of positive effects from vitamin D. What we know about vitamin D is that it's easy to measure the deficiency, unlike some of these other things that we've talked about. And there's very strict parameters with regards to vitamin D deficiency. With regards to cognition, there's not much. But with regards to the growing body of evidence behind vitamin D, this is where the action is right now. Now, I tell patients that vitamin D is is the fad of the day. Whether it holds up or doesn't hold up, I, I couch my phrasing. You've already identified me as chair emeritus, so I've been through plenty of fads in medicine over the past 30 years. Nonetheless, the evidence seems to be accumulating with regards to vitamin D. I've never seen anybody that's hypervitaminosis D yet, although as the fad continues, that might happen. But the striking piece of evidence that's out there with vitamin D is not only is it good for bone metabolism and seems to have a a significant role in bone absorption and remodeling, but it prevents falls. Study after study is showing that treatment just with vitamin D reduces falls. So if you've got a primary practice or a nursing home practice or a primary care practice with lots of elderly patients in it who are clearly at risk for falls, they're probably vitamin D deficient to some degree and could probably benefit from a supplement. Now let me say a little bit more about vitamin D and calcium. The supplementations are oftentimes calcium plus D. And if you Take a look at enough patients who are on, presumably on, calcium plus D and measure their vitamin D levels, which are much more responsive to intervention than trying to examine calcium levels and responsiveness to drugs. You'll find that these people should have much higher levels of vitamin D than what you're seeing from their calcium and vitamin D supplementation. When you pursue it further, you generally find out that calcium is very hard to take and that people aren't taking the two or three tablets every day. And so they're really not getting in the RDA of vitamin D either because they're passing on their calcium. This is one good reason why I think many physicians are actually looking at vitamin D supplementation on a -a once-a-month basis. So watch for that trend to continue as well because as we go forward in time, we're really understanding that we've got to look at our drugs and our treatments in the context of what patients are willing to do and how they take their medicines. And they're not taking their calcium as to what you might think you've prescribed. Certainly, it doesn't matter what we prescribe if they're not taking it and taking it regularly. And some of these things are very difficult to take. With regard to vitamin D, are you measuring levels routinely in your general population or in those who are at increased risk for uh, osteoporosis or falls? Well, at the nursing home, where we presume everybody to be osteoporotic, We have in place vitamin D once a month for all residents at 50,000 units, and we give it as a standard of care. Very inexpensive and and very little uh, downside to that, I imagine. Also very easy to take. It's one kind of normal-sized gel cap, no matter what the brand, and it's once a month, so it's kind of a nice little ritual and habit to get into. And in summary, we've talked about a number of different vitamins, uh, initially about regard to cognition, but also we've mentioned some of the data suggesting perhaps increased mortality, increased rates of certain types of cancer, disappointing results in heart disease. Any final thoughts or recommendations you would give to treating doctors around the country? The other therapy that's popular right now is coenzyme Q10. It's another one of those precursor 
therapies that helps with the metabolism and the advancement of metabolic function. It's in that universe of antioxidant and uh, oxidative stress. And so stay tuned for where coenzyme Q10 fits in. It seems to be popular right now among a lot of the cardiologists. There's some basic information that would support its use. Again, it's, it's where the action is right now. Whether or not the randomized placebo-controlled double-blind studies actually have it pan out or whether, in fact, there's a downside to it remains to be seen. I want to thank Dr. Eric Tangalos for being with us and reviewing with us the use and misuse of vitamins for various conditions in, in a very clear way. And we will continue to watch for vitamin D developments and coenzyme Q10 developments. The very, very interesting summary of vitamins in health. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable here on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals.